Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Pinchas or Phineas, that was Numbers, chapter 25, verse 10, through uh, basically 30, verse 1. A lot of stuff here, uh, mostly obviously in the various offerings, as well as uh, the countings, and of course, the blessing to, to Pinchas or Phineas uh, regarding his actions and what he did. We're going to a little spiel at all regarding this topic here. Uh, a few de- de- details are out to you. Uh, mind you, of course, this is toward the tail end of their 40 years of wandering. So they've done, gone through two countings now. This is their second, their second list, which, as you can see, obviously has a slightly different number than, uh, than the original list did. But they have a, a total decrease of, of a couple thousand people, uh, as well as, of course, a significant decrease in the tribe of Simeon. A few other increases, uh, increased decreases varied from tribe to tribe. We also have, and of course, purpose for us for, for um, the wars, the wars they're going to be fighting as well as uh, for land allocation. My spiel is going to be pretty straightforward on this topic because for the most part, this is a fairly straightforward tour portion. Before I go into my thing, if any comments or questions, you unmute yourself. I may or may not get to whatever you have in mind or whatever your questions are. So the option to unmute yourself now if you wish or and ask a question, or we'll go ahead and move on. Yes, uh, Rose or, or Deborah. Uh, sure. We wanted to uh, we wanted to ask you about the numbers. Why? Hold on a minute. My speaker is still. I can't quite hear you. What about the numbers? Of Hold on a minute. All the numbers. Change speakers. Oh. Why do we have all those numbers of seven this, eight of that? Six five four three of the each day has a different amount of uh, cattle that has to be, or and even different types of cattle that have to be sacrificed. What? What are those? I know they mean something. It can't just be arbitrarily there. Um, the different. T- okay, so we're gonna go into a little bit about that. Um, one of the topics, more specifically, we're gonna be head- hitting is. Uh, let's see what's here. It's a bike, a shit here. It has. So going through a number of these offerings, the plan is we're discussing, we're discussing the, some of the different animals that are being offered, as okay. well as some of the symbols being offered and what their function is, uh, meaning okay. symbolic function is. Uh, in the case okay. of the count and such, obviously we have the, the, the continual decrease for numbers as far as for the, the county of Shavuot, sorry, Shavuot, um, Sukkot, uh, the decrease of the bulls, which is obviously with the case of the 70. Um, and that's, that's a, a significant component as what's what's what what the reason or purpose behind that is and then we have um the, the offerings in general that that's actually gonna be a lengthy topic more specifically because we're, we're gonna get into that a little bit about this topic um as you will note there's a significant amount of discussion as far as what's being offered and we will note that there is an addition that's listed here that was not previously recorded in other offerings um, we write, we, meaning that 
the different offerings have been offered at different times and listed with what, what holidays and such. Numbers gives a fairly, fairly thorough list, but uh, it includes a new component, which is not previously part of it, which is the libation offerings, in which the pouring out of, your, of the wine over the offering itself as it's being cooked or burned. Um, so we'll discuss a little bit about that as well. That's the plan, at least, regarding that topic. Uh, Rose, I apologize earlier. I didn't catch what you were saying because my speaker went dead on me. So you had asked a question a moment ago before Deborah had asked hers. If you want to repeat your question so I can hear it. No, it was, it was the same question we wanted. Oh, same question. Uh, we're together. Yes. Sorry. I couldn't. Sorry, my, my speaker went dead when she was talking. So I wasn't sure what she said at all. I was, okay, I wasn't sure what, what it had. Because I had just swapped the speaker out. It's, it's a battery powered thing. Anyway, okay, so we'll discuss about the, the, the offerings uh, a little bit later. Any comments or questions? Mm. We're on this tour portion. All right. Wake up. I don't think it's somebody, somebody else. Very, very hot um, outside. It is very almost. It's like a hundred almost. So in our Torah portion, all right, let's go through a few of these, few of these basic details. Uh, there's some interesting topics to discuss. Routing Phineas. Another course is, uh, my little notes here, I'm running out to you in a minute here. Change the marker. So Phineas, as we already know, lists quite clearly who he is and where he comes from and such. And identifies his, his identity and such. Uh, note that if we look back at our Torah portion, we would see, change the background here, we would see that uh, Phineas was not actually nominated or anointed as a priest of anything. You know, that originally, what we have anointed, we have Aaron, who was the high priest. And then he, of course, had four sons. There was Nadav. Uh, Abihu, and there was Elazar, and there Itamar. Now, of these sons, these four sons Aaron had, these two, of course, die, and it says they die specifically before they had any children. So, there are no descendants from these at all. And Itamar does not record any of his children. I'm assuming he had some, but I, I don't know what they were or, or how many he had. But in the original details that were given to us, Elazar has one son when they leave Egypt. That was Pinchas or Phineas. That was his son. Now, I don't know if he had any other children. Our Bible does not record if he had any other children. It records he only has one son, Phineas or Pinchas. So at the time of anointing, when Aaron was made high priest 40 years earlier, Aaron was anointed as a high priest. Elazar was anointed as a high priest. Originally, no doubt be who were as well, but they got whacked. And then there's Itamar was anointed as a high priest. And Pinchas, or Phineas, was not. He was not part of that, that anointing process. Not that he wasn't going to be. It's just he just wasn't. Because note that in, at this time period, when they were done, Actually, I guess it was 38, 30, 38 years earlier, 39 years earlier. The first 39 years earlier. So 39 years earlier, because we're in our 40th year at this point. 39 years earlier, uh, these three men were anointed as priests. Actually, all of them were, but 
they, these three survived as priests. Pinchas Phineas was probably too young um, in that the priesthood anointing process and service occurs at certain ages uh, that you don't, you don't have infants serve, for example. So Pinchas or Phineas was most likely uh, less than 20 years old. Most likely. He could have been at 20. He could have been someone in that ballpark. We're not sure exactly. But he was still relatively young. Now, when they did their first census at this time, when they, these men were anointed, the people included in that census for the tribe of Levi would have been, of course, obviously Aaron, it would have been Elazar, it would have been Itamar, and it would have been Pinchas or Phineas as well, would have included the census count because he was a Levite, and the Levite was one month and up. But they can't serve as a high priest at a month old. They don't serve till they're old enough to actually do the job. And I, I don't recall, I know ordinary Levites serve between, they start serving either 25 or 30, and they end around 50. Uh, Phineas being a high priest, I don't recall a record or a mention as far as the minimum age for a high priest is. Uh, I would assume it's at least 20 as all the other Israelites were. It could have been 25. I'm not positive. But because it, it doesn't specify what, what the high priest's age limits were. But in the ordinary Levite age limits, it was listed in this way. And so Pinhouse was not necessarily a high priest at the time, would not have been anointed. But it wasn't going to be. It just wasn't at the time. So 39 years before, the, all of them were accounted, but only Phineas would not have been actually anointed during the anointing process. The general idea is basically who Phineas was. Uh, he was obviously a relatively young man when he crossed Egypt. So the, he, at this point in time, as uh, far as when our story, when he had killed uh, uh, the, the, the Cosby and uh, what's the guy's what's the guy's name it was uh, Z oh where is it Zimri Zimri thank you he killed those two uh, with his with his spear the lance whatever he had with him uh, he most likely was somewhere under the age of 60 give or take his father Elazar was much older uh, because again he had to be anointed high priest Elazar is probably somewhere, because he's, he's not the youngest, mind you. Itamar was younger than Elazar was. And these are all have to be minimum age. Whatever the minimum age is, they have to be at least minimum age. Elazar is most likely somewhere near or around, at this point in time, the 70 to 80 years old. Most likely, Itamar, Elazar is somewhere in that ballpark. Now, I find this fascinating, and there's a reason why I'm going through this is that you will note that our Bibles specifically state that there was no man counted on the second census with the, that uh, Moses and Elazar had done that was also counted on the first census that Moses and, El and Aaron had done 39 years before. Um, if you will note, our Bibles are very specific on exactly the wording cho choice they make. They're referring explicitly stated no man counted among the children of Israel. The children of Israel is what they're referring to. No man counted among them in both senses. Levi is not included in that definition of the children of Israel. Your Bibles are very specific. It says the tribe of Levi is always counted separately from the children of Israel. I'm not saying they're not a descendant of, 
I am saying in the definitions that our Torah gives us, the children of Israel we think of, it is only 12 tribes, not including Levi, because 12 tribes meaning it's including Manasseh and Ephraim being split. It's 12 tribes, as far as our Torah's definition is concerned, Levi is a 13th or separate tribe. It's independent. Now, don't get me wrong. I do realize there are some people say, well, but Levi is sometimes included in the counting. Sometimes not at different times in the, in the sequence. And that is true at different locations, it may be. But as far as our Torah is concerned, the census taking is concerned. It defines children of Israel as the 12 tribes excluding Levi. And we know that because Eleazar was included and Itamar was included in the first count. And in this count, 39 years later, Eleazar is still there. So the definition when it lists that there was no man counting the children of Israel, that was the first with the exception of uh, Caleb and Joshua. Well, there's actually more exceptions than that because Moses was included in the second count and Eleazar is included in the second count. And we don't know the exact age of Phineas at the time. We're not positive. If he was between 20 to 25, he could have been counted in the first but not be a high priest. We're not sure. And there's no record of Itamar's death. We're not sure how old he was. But Levi is a separate counting cycle. is not inclusive of count the children of Israel. Your Torah is pretty adamant about that as far as that God keeps them separate at all times. So one, don't confuse the two definitions. So the bottom, bottom line is that we can see that there are people who are still older, that are still around, that were there during the Red Sea crossing, that were still adults at the time, but are still around at this time, 39 years later. I don't know how many. We clearly see that Eleazar is one of them. I don't know how many are still around. Clearly Moses is obviously still around, though he'll die soon. Uh, but in this case, there's still some around. We also don't know the exact n- details regarding women being dying off. Because in the original count, obviously it was counting males only who could go out to war. And this count counts males only who could go out to war. It does not specify that women were included in either count. And as a result, we do not know if they were included in the, the death order, the death punishment of 40 years in the wilderness of wandering. They may have been wandered 40 years, but not necessarily all of them had to die in that sequence. So the point is that there may be quite a few still older elderly people that are still around. There were once then, but not now, or they're still around now in this counting cycle. So the point is, not everybody is under the age of 60. There can still be some people who are still older, like Eleazar, still around. Moe's obviously still around, too. Other than, of course, regarding Caleb and Joshua. There also could be other reasons as to why God has excluded Levi and does not appear to have necessarily made Levi suffer the same execution fate as the children of Israel did. If you will note the 10 spies who went out, what spies came for the tribe of Levi? Zero. <laughs> of the 10 spies who sent out, God ordered them to send out representatives for each of the tribes, but Levi did not get a spy to be sent out with them. They were not included in that count. So when they came back, there is no, there's, no, there's not necessarily reason to believe that the tribe of Levi or the sons of Levi would necessarily have agreed with the children of Israel in their assessment because no one from Levi went out. So they had no representative of their own tribe to say, yeah, this, the, the land's terrible or no, land's great. They had no one to say to believe 
they only had the 10 tribe, 10 spies of other, of, of the other tribes and not their own. So it is possible that that's one of the reasons why Levi was excluded in the punishment, because clearly Eleazar was excluded. That's quite obvious. Um, we don't know how many others were excluded uh, in, in the details. And of course, obviously, uh, Moses was excluded too uh, for the same reason. He, he dies in sort of Aaron for a different purpose. Anyway, so that's the basic background of what's going on here. And we understand how this process is working. Uh, let's see here. That's point. We have... All right, let's talk about Phineas more specifically. This is basically just a basic background history of relative you know, information. So Phineas, he gets a special benefit from his, I guess you call it zealousness or his, his zeal for God. It's a covenant of peace. And more specifically, this covenant of peace that God is putting upon him, it specifies here, uh, therefore, if verses, uh, verse 12 of uh, chapter 25. Therefore, say, behold, I give him, her to Phineas, my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his offspring after him a covenant of eternal priesthood, because he took vengeance for his God, and he atoned for the children of Israel. So peace, this peace has a great, wonderful promise that God gives. And what does it translate to? This peace translates to eternal priesthood. So is this what's meant by a piece of the action? <laughs> I can say that. So uh, the eternal priesthood, this is an interesting concept because note, people here on this Zoom call, the dominant, at least as far as I can tell, are all believers in Messiah in one capacity or another. Um, this is where we have some interesting details to work with here. So this internal priesthood, last time I checked, eternal meant um, unending forever. It means it doesn't go away, as in like the eternal God doesn't go away, uh, it, eternal promises, it, it's eternal promise. So eternal priest for, for Phineas, so Pinchas, so Pinchas or Phineas, well, Pin, all of his descendants, he may have a whole bunch of them. I don't know how many descendants he's going to have. There could, could be thousands and thousands. There will always be at least one along the line they go through their history and examination that will be eligible and legitimately inheritors of his priesthood line. Now, the others may be garbage people. They'd be terrible human beings, evil, murderers. I don't know. I don't have anything in, in knowledge of them. But there will always be at least one for all eternity from his descendancy. Now, here's my question for you. Messiah is supposed to be the, our high priest. Make your brain stretch a little bit. Uh, He's supposed to be our high priest. Now, this eternal priesthood, mind you, Phineas is now is going to be, once Eleazar passes away, the high priest of his day, which happens during Joshua's lifetime. Or actually, I think just after Joshua dies, you can think of it. I think Joshua dies before Eleazar does. Either way, Phineas will eventually become the, the high priest of Israel. And so his descendants will, of course, follow the high priest line. From, and there's records of this in, for, for, in, in your Bible regarding different high priests and their genealogies and such. But Messiah is supposed to be a high priest as well. And when Messiah is high priest, is Phineas also the high priest? This is an interesting question. Because Messiah is in no way related to Phineas. That we can, as far, now, mind you, related means related through their fathers, not through mothers. We're not discussing mothers. Uh, inheritance is through fathers. So in this detail, Phineas is the light of Levi, 
Messiah's line of what tribe is it? Judah. But Messiah gets the high priesthood. What about this agreement God has made? He made a permanent agreement, just like he did with Abraham, that's never going to end. A permanent agreement to Phineas. There will be somebody in his line that will always be this part of this priesthood. So we have this strange scenario going on of God making a promise and then later on swapping out the characters, in this case Messiah, being the high priest and Phineas' promise of what, what happens to it. Does it just find a, a dead end? It died? Well, does God's promises ever die? No. That's a self, you know, oxymoron, I guess you call it. Because <laughs> God has to die for his promise to die. He can't die. So this eternal priesthood, there must be some information here we're missing in order to justify or rectify, I should say, the two problems of a high priest over here, which is the same priesthood line or priesthood function, I should say, not line, same priesthood function that this priesthood is supposed to follow because Pentephinus follows, of course, the, 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 the Aaronic priesthood. So there's something we're missing here. Well, the something that we're missing here is spelled out later, which I forgot to write the verse down, honestly, because I've forgotten, um, regarding the line in the book of uh, uh, so Jeremiah, I think it is, uh, regarding the line of Sadducees. I spelled that correctly. Sadducees. I don't know how to spell it. still Sadducees. Either way, they are the sons of Zadok. The Sadducees, who were this, the, 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 the inheritors, the sons of Zadok, a similar agreement was made with these men, who, mind you, sons of Zadok, are the descendants of Pinchas. So amongst all these different people come along, the Sadducees who, who, who came from the sons of Zadok, they are given a promise as well, that they were consistent or advocate, advocating the following of the Torah and returning the people to God in their time period, and they were alive, while the rest of Israel said, forget you, God, I'm done with you. I don't care about you, I'm on my own thing. So we can see that this promise of eternal peace was then reiterated, essentially, because God's the exact same thing the sons of Zadok. Because of what you did forever, you love someone there. And there are rules that apply to these guys and how they conduct themselves. Now, he doesn't apply these as a single priesthood line. He applies it as a whole family. This family line, these sons of Zedek, which we wind up doing, the description given to us is more along the lines of assistants or second or people who are assisting or helping the way it's described here because there's, mind you, there are rule changes to how these men have to come to their lives. What, he, what God does is he allows these men to uh, marry widows, which no high priests can't do that. He allows them to marry widows if their widow was, was of a Levite family. So he changes the rules here and says, you guys will always be around, always be part of this agreement. But as a result, because of who they are, what they wind up doing, instead of being the actual high priest, they wind up being below or assistant, which is not described in our Torah. But the instructions given these men wind up describing, they describe what they do, they wind up being the assistant high priest. I mean, they can do almost everything the guy up high priest can do. Actually, they technically can do anything. There's nothing, no, no, no difference as far as that's concerned. But they're not the ones actually in charge of them. The ones in charge of all of them are this guy. 
So even though God made this strange requirement, strange promise to El, to Pinchas, all descendancy, he still winds up fulfilling it, but not in the manner we would normally think. He fulfills the matter of you will still maintain priesthood, but your priesthood is now going to be subservient to a replacement high priest. You are now assistants. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. It's an interesting place. It's a good thing to be to, to Pinchas. It's a, what, he, what he did was beneficial to him and, of course, all of his ascendancy afterward. I can try to, I can try to do advanced content. Yeah, uh, there's a, a, a list as far as other ideas as far as how I share content <laughs> on the screen. Uh, let's see, I used to do things by hand. I'm a very analog person by, by nature. Uh, let's see here. We've got uh, next comment we have. Oh, we have the, 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 uh, the Midianites. Of course, I'm not going to go through all the details of Midianites. We obviously remember the Midianites, what they did, the difference of Cosby and, and everybody else as far as that's concerned. Um, and how they handled or, or mishandled, I should say. Change the screen here. So in this case, we have, so you want the Midianites, they'll be obviously, be, it's verse uh, 17 and 18 uh, uh, regarding the, the punishment that actually goes with them. Other details I want to point out to you, these are fairly subtle. But just so you know them, because we're going to jump into a different topic shortly. This different topic is going to cover a different, different, different more focus upon the, the offerings themselves. There are a number of counts listed here, different tribes, such obviously mentioned before, some gained people, some less lost people. Some names were renamed. There are different people's names as far as we have them recorded or bought, brought to uh, the list of, uh, in Genesis regarding the number of sons each man has. These lists are actually, a few names were different. A few names or families are missing. In particular, uh, Benjamin had 10 sons in, uh, in Genesis, and now he has five. We don't know where they all, the previous five died. They may have died during the plagues. They may have died during some of the time period as slaves. We don't know. The speculation on that, uh, a, few other, a few other people got renamed uh, in, in, in the count. Either way, it's not terribly important on the names, the exact names. Let's see here. Also points out, of course, yeah, we have the reiteration of Exodus 6 regarding Moses and Aaron, that their mom, Yochbed, was Levi's daughter, uh, and that he was, he, I'm, I'm assuming he was an old man when he gave, when, when his, I'm not sure what, how old his wife was or how many wives he had, but he was an old man, I'm speculating, when Yochbed was born, uh, because she, she is a sister of Kohath, and Kohath, of course, was Levi's son back in the land of Canaan. And so uh, he obviously was an old man. I'm assuming he's an old man. He has a daughter uh, named Yochbed who winds up marrying uh, Amram, which is also, which is uh, Levi's uh, grandson. And then, of course, Yochbed, when she grows up, I don't know how old she was when she gave birth to Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, but uh, either way, she gave birth to them. And I, it appears she perished or died uh, in the land of Egypt. And so did her, fa- her, her husband, uh, Amram. Let's see, other comments regarding this topic. Uh, Zlofadad's daughters, there was, obviously, there was a, they, they, there's his daughters that come up in, in the storyline for the descendants of Manasseh. Zlofadad's daughters, they have pointed out, clearly, there's an inheritance problem here. There's no sons. Note, the daughters were wise enough to distinguish the difference between what killed their father versus what killed everybody else, and that they said, hey, 
he was not part of Korah's rebellion. He was not part of going against God. He didn't, fall, he didn't go against anybody in particular. Uh, however, in this instance, uh, he still died. He died in his own sins, as, she, as, the, as the daughters point out. Therefore, they recognize that he is not guilty of going against God or rebelling against God, necessarily, other than, of course, the same punishment they all got from 40 years earlier, uh, by the wilderness 40 years. But rather, so he didn't abandon or there's no justification for removal of his inheritance. He just has no sons. That was the only fault he had of, it, of his own. Of course, then we have the new commandment that comes from God regarding the details of women inheritance. Now, it doesn't spell out here, it says it later on that, so she can inherit it, but the woman has to, has to marry within her own tribe. So the, 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 the inheritance she receives, not transfer from tribe Manasseh, for example, to you know, Judah or, 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 or Ephraim or somebody else. It always says they have to remain or stay married with inside their tribe when they, when they are of marrying age. So inheritance at least stays the tribe, even though it's not a, uh, not a, uh, even though they're not males, they still get to inherit in that capacity. Uh, let's see here. It says, uh, this jumped out to number 27. Explain this a little bit. This is an important component. We, we had discussed this previously when it occurred back in numbers 20. Verse 27, regarding the punishment that God is doling out to Moses. I'm going through this rather quickly, so I apologize if I'm missing anything. Uh, in the requirements for why he's not being brought into in the land. So verse, chapter 27, verse 14. Actually, verse 12. Uh, see, well, yeah. Verse 12, 27 says, Jehovah spoke to Moses, go up to this mountain of Abiram and see the land that I have made, uh, given to the children of Israel, you shall see it, and you shall be gathered into your people, you too as Aaron, your brother, was gathered in, because you rebelled against my word, and the wilderness was in, in the assembly strife to sanctify me at the water before their eyes. They were the waters of Strachadesh, and the wilderness of Zin. Now, in this instance, we have a, a, a reiteration or an additional explanation regarding the complaint that God had specifically against Moses, and it does not, as been, it, is, it has been a controversy for probably since it was first written down. <laughs> what exactly Moses did that was wrong? Because there were two things he did. Uh, number one, he chose to obviously strike the rock versus talk to it. But number two, the second error he made, says he quoted he, people, says, Was we bring forth water, to, water for you from this rock? Those are his two combined mistakes. There were not one. There were two mistakes he made. It's been a long-standing debate. Which one was it? Was it the striking problem? Or was it the, the fact that he includes says, we must we be forth water for the rock? Or a combination of both? Or maybe something else we don't know about. So it appears here in this explanation that God specifies you failed to sanctify me, which means to set me apart in their eyes. While setting apart, the people themselves have no knowledge whether or not God said strike or speak. Mind you, God isn't telling everybody all at once a big, loud mega, mega speaker saying, Moses, go talk to rock. They don't hear that part. And they only see Moses doing stuff and see this cloud that comes and goes. So whether or not he struck the rock or spoke the rock or did a jig on the rock or stood on his head on the rock, no one has any knowledge whether that's right or wrong. So that being sanctified or not being sanctified, in my opinion, is not a fair, fair or not a very accurate statement. Uh, I don't personally make, it doesn't make any sense to me whether he was supposed to strike and that was a problem or whether he was supposed to speak and that was a problem um, because no human knows 
other than Moses and Aaron himself, I imagine, would know what Moses was supposed to do. So the idea of striking the rock versus speaking the rock, I think, is an illegitimate argument. Um, the legitimate argument, however, when Moses said, must we bring forth water for you from this rock? What's Moses now doing? He is now including himself in the power of God. He, instead of seeking, keeping God separate over here off the side, and said, God will do this over here. I'm just the person, the, 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 the trigger man, so to speak. He's actually pulling the strings. Moses has combined himself as well as Aaron all in one as God. So instead of being sanctified, being separated, Moses combined them into one. That seems to be a more legitimate problem. And God seems to confirm that philosophy or that argument in this Torah portion. When he specifies that you failed to sanctify me. In the original complaint Moses gives in the book of Numbers, says God says you didn't believe me. Uh, well, it's kind of hard to believe, understand that, God, that Moses somehow stopped believing in a God or stopped believing God was there or stopped believing that God had power. That seems like a strange understanding. Hence why it's so vague, why people are so confused by it. Why would God say he didn't believe me when God, Moses struck the rock versus speaking? And that, hence it draws your attention to, well, he didn't believe you. Maybe it's because he didn't believe speaking would be good enough and it had you strike. And that was... It draws our human mind to think, oh, well, it's, it's, it's the belief argument must be that Moses didn't believe the, weak, the speaking would work. Um, however, in this explanation, God put, it's because you didn't sanctify, you didn't set me aside. You didn't distinguish me separate from everybody else in their eyes, not in your own eyes, but everybody else's eyes. So pretty good idea regarding with this combined with the original complaint in Numbers 20, that it was the lack of this delineating between God and Moses, the separation that didn't occur like it was supposed to occur. There's supposed to be a separation of the two, and Moses failed to do that in the eyes of the assembly. Again, whether he struck it, stood on it, walked over it, rolled on it, did a somersault off it, a belly flop off it, a cannibal, makes no difference. No one knows, other than Moses and Aaron, what he was or wasn't supposed to do. So no one would say, oh, because he, he, he didn't do it the right way, therefore God's mad. No other person in Israel has any knowledge of what is or isn't right in this instance with the striking of the rock thing. However, they do know full well the words coming out of Moses' mouth. They can hear quite clearly when he says, must we bring forth water for you from this rock? Those words say a gazillion things. That combines God and Moses and Aaron into one. Philosophy of Trinity. Oh, well, let's go there. Um, anyway, let's, let's continue on. So let's see, we'll jump past that. I just want to, that, that just a God clarifying to Moses what the details are. And mind you, I'm not the only one who has argued this. Uh, Ramban also said the exact same thing. It had to do with the fact that he, his, his words was a problem, not his actual striking. And Ramban was a rabbi for many, many years ago. Uh, let's see, let's go through. Okay, so Moses, of course, asks, who gets to, who gets to come after me? Obviously, it's, it's Joshua. Uh, now, it's important to note, we may gloss over it because it doesn't matter to us. For the time, it does matter. Who usually follows a king and control everything? Generally speaking, we call them heirs to the throne, known as sons or daughters. So normally, like Pharaoh, for example, 
who comes after the Pharaoh, his son comes after the Pharaoh. He becomes Pharaoh also and rules accordingly. Moses has sons. Uh, I forgot both their names. It'll come back to you later. He has two sons active and currently alive at this time, or at least are near to it alive. Or if not, they're alive. His grandsons certainly are because, you know, Judges proves that. His grandsons are still around because one of them screws up. Anyway, uh, so his, his, his grandson, at least around, grandsons, uh, and his sons are probably still around, most likely. So in this instance, who follows Moses? It's not just a trivial question. It's legitimate. Is it, in fact, a descendant of Moses or a descendant of Aaron or somebody else? And God, of course, says, no, it's not based on your lineage, rather your quality of character and who you are. In this case, based on Joshua. Joshua never abandoned Moses. I mean, he went up to Mount Sinai and got the Ten Commandments or whatever. And well, Mo- Josh was up there the whole time too. He was the golden calf thing. Josh was hanging out the mountain. I'm not sure where he was, you know, halfway up, a third of the way up. I don't know. So he was somewhere on the mountain. Um, Josh was up there the whole time. He wasn't part of the golden calf thing. Even Aaron can't claim that. Uh, so Joshua was always dedicated to Moses. And if God rewards that dedication, okay, because you were dedicated, because you're the right person, you, you also you do proper with the spies, you, you, you were faithful. Therefore, my faithful servant, I'll reward you accordingly. Joshua, you are the one who's promoted to be in charge. Any questions so far? Hopefully not too bad. <clears throat> and there's a lot of things being hurled at you because I want to talk a little more completely about the offerings. All right. <clears throat> so in our books, our, our, our Bible port tour portions, we have a, a fairly complete... I don't say perfect, but I say fairly complete list of uh, of offering options as far as what God's doing and what we're sorry what He's doing, what we're supposed to do in the form of uh, different holy days and different applications. In the case of offerings, we have the details, of course, given to us regarding all the holy days, including Shabbat. Which my, we have obviously uh, in in this list we have the daily offerings. We have uh, the Shabbat offerings. We have new moon offerings. We've got the various holidays, including uh, the actually the offering that's not spelled out here specifically, of course, is the Pesach offering or the lamb. So this is not a complete perfect list. It's just a fairly complete list. There's a lot of stuff in there. So we don't have the actual lamb offering for Passover, but we do have the first day of, of unleavened bread. So we have the first day of unleavened bread. And of course, obviously, that's first and seventh. Seventh day, both inclusive of, of, the, of, of the days there. We have Shavuot. Uh, which, of course, is the first fruit to complete the first fruit cycle. Uh, most Christians are familiar with the concept of Pentecost. That's what Shavuot is. We have, obviously, in chapter 29, it moves on to other holy days, the fall feast specifically, the uh, uh, trumpets of Yom Teruah. We have uh, Yom Kippur. Now, note, if you'll note this list here, we have in Numbers. Most of these holy days, this one, this one, this one, and uh, these two, and they have pretty much the exact same list of offerings. You got a bull, you got a lamb, sorry, a gold bull, a ram, seven lambs, and a goat. That's pretty consistent. And it's 
not on they, they vary some, but for the most of the breaks, is it I would point out to you there's one that's very, very important that we never forget. There is no goat offering for the daily or Shabbat. That's not by accident, it's not by happenstance. The goat is the sin offering. Uh, so in the case of the daily offerings, the Shabbat offerings, God does not require you or does not expect you, does not demand or ask of you to be sin-free. The whole concept of being sin-free, so obviously have no sin or nothing, no guilt put upon you. Then we get this idea, the idea is reiterated or expounded upon in the New Testament that if a person, the Gentile, has no knowledge of what is, isn't right, but he has to be sin-free before he can come to Shabbat on a synagogue, that's ridiculous. He would never go. He'd have the opportunity to go. So sin offerings, you are not required to be sin-free to go to Shabbat. Why? Because you're supposed to learn. Moses is taught in the synagogues every Shabbat. That was the, was the instruction of the book of Acts. So understand that Shabbat and the offerings don't have a sin offering. That is not God's concern. Your sins are not his concern on Shabbat. What is his concern on Shabbat? Learn what Moses teaches. That's his concern. Now, when it comes to new moon, unleavened bread, Shavuot, Yom Chua, yeah, these are all, uh, there's more of this. Yom is also uh, uh, Sukkot. All of these, however, now we're discussing, okay, now there's actions, there's sin, there's righteousness, there's in run righteousness. These down here, these holy days, yes, there is a sin offering. You, you as a Gentile having zero knowledge of what God is, or even if there is such a thing called a God, this means nothing to you. A complete utter pagan has, well, I mean, pagan, they, have, they have religion too, but I guess what we, other atheists would be a more accurate description. An atheist would say, okay, this new moon, other than bread, this is meaningless garbage as far as they're concerned. So this information here, gleaned here, is of no value to them. How do they, how do they value this stuff down here? The new moons, the 11 bread, the Shavuot, the holy days. This does not become of any value until after you do this. You start learning after Shabbat. You, how many of you, when you were children, um, if you remember that far back, uh, Yom Kippur? had no knowledge what Yom Kippur was, didn't care. Did you even know what it was? Have you heard it before? Maybe you have, or you hadn't. Who knows? But where'd you learn from it? Where'd you learn about it from? Well, your mom or dad may have taught you if you happen to grow up that type of household. Otherwise, it took your Bible to teach you. God had to open your eyes. How did he do that? You had to open the book up. You had to read something. It's not osmosis. You actually read it. Well, where, where, how often or frequently does that happen? Well, typically, most of us being a Christian, Christian country, once a week. Some of us would do it on Sunday, some on Saturdays. Either way, it's about once a week you open the book. Guess what once a week is? It's called Shabbat. It's once a week you open a book and read it. Hey, look what that says there. What's this stuff? It's called, what's a new moon? I never heard that before. What's, it, what's the unleavened bread? What's that mean? Then these things become value. This garbage becomes treasure once and after you understand the Shabbat's important. And Shabbat, once you find it's important, that's when you learn that sin, over here, the goat thing, actually matters. How you conduct your life is relevant. It's important. It means something to God. So it's important to understand that, that these, these 
holy days, which are gold to us, are garbage to someone who has no value or knowledge of it. Of it. It's empty. It's trash. What man's garbage of them is treasure? That's the principle. This is gold to us, but trash to be else. After they start studying and reading about their God, and I say what the God asks, asks of them and what he is, what he expects of them to do and how to live the life, and what is life, not just our own seeking of our own personal pleasures, but actual living life. Then when I said, oh, there's a reason we live. Oh, there's some stuff I shouldn't be doing. Oh, I should start changing my conduct. And that's when we understand what sin's about. Okay, now these, which is a helpful, great in removal of those sins, become the valuable gold that we've been desiring. More valuable than gold and much fine gold, the psalm says. This is the valuable thing, but this is worthless otherwise. So there is no sin offering for these on purpose because sin is not the, the major thrust for Shabbat. Education is. Moses is taught in the synagogues every Shabbat. Education matters here, not the sin. So Shabbat is distinctly separate from, from sin. It's that where, you, where you're, you're going to class, you go to school. You don't get your degree to actually get to go to school first. So go to school first. Then you start learning your different classes, you know, all these different holidays and such, and what they all teach you and, you know, your holiday, you know, 101 type of stuff. So this is how this is supposed to work. So sin is separated out from, the, from, from Shabbat because not supposed to be included in these. Sin is addressed in all of these. So these matter when it comes to how you conduct your life. So our Torah portion discusses the different aspects of uh, these offerings. We're going to go to every little aspect of it. But there's certain components because this is probably more relevant, I think, to a Christian than it would be to a Jew. Because Jews already know this stuff, meaning it's taught already. I say no, by, by osmosis, again, it'd be taught to them. Uh, so Jews already know most of this stuff, so, but it, it is relevant still because Christians are the ones who, who is more valuable. And the different holidays, we have obviously animals offered. There's bulls. Um, there are, of course, goats, which we discussed that a minute ago regarding sins. And there are sheep. And now there are also rams, and I'm not going to go into great detail, but there are also rams here. Now, rams are a type of sheep, obviously, the male sheep that's fully intact and such. Um, and such. But there are rams in certain instances, certain holidays. There's also wine. There is also oil. And there's, of course, obviously grain or the meal offerings, but grain down here. Now, I'm, I'm listening to this in arbitrary... Arbitrary. I mean, just just a generic list. Is supposed to think special is higher or lower in value here. Each of these animals meant something to God, and it has some value and symbolism behind them. I'm not going to go through exhaustively every every scripture there is for each verse. That's that for each animal. That's that's uh, a little bit excessive. But in our Torah portion, we have this great explanation, which is wonderful of God. He's very helpful in his capacity. Bulls. We of course use the bulker bulls, bulker, which means young. Is actually the, what they use the word for strength or strong. Strong spelled e. The e at the end. So these bulls are offered on most of the holy days. I think all of them, uh, but they serve, of course, Shabbat itself. We also have goats, which are repeated over and over and over and over again. Clearly, it focuses its entire attention upon sin and how to how to remove sin. A goat that is the main thrust of the goat. The goat characteristic, though, as we understand, because God separates the sheep from the goats, 
The goat's character is the is, as is standard Jewish tradition, the wanderer or explorer. So the wanderer, wanderer, explorer. And the idea of a goat as far as what they do and how the how Judaism treats the goat as the one who explores or wanders around a bit. Because obviously we have the sheep. We're very, very familiar with the sheep. We're the one who follows. F. Ugh, we spell it. Follow. And sheep, of course, obviously represented of the people themselves, individual people. We understand that it's been my sheep, my flock, that kind of thing. We understand that that concept has been fairly well pounded into our heads over the Torahs and uh, the Torah portion of Tanakh uh, throughout its whole whole existence. The wine, or sorry, the rams, sorry, the rams, which are a couple of rams are given, not often. There's a few rams given. Uh, most commonly, this is not exclusive, mind you. Most commonly, rams have been have been associated with the one that is slaughtered, not the sheep, meaning Messiah ram, slaughtered meaning the prophet ram. Um, the ram, it's it's the one that's supposed to be the sheep, the people that says, okay, I got horns, and the horns are shofars to declare, to proclaim, or yell out loud at the top of my lungs, what are you think you're doing kind of thing. That's a prophet's job. So the rams usually associate with them in that capacity. So that, that's the offering or the example given for rams. So the idea is a prophet or the shofar, the blast, because it comes to the ram itself. The prophet that speaks, the prophet that's being, that's being telling you what to do, what not to do. We obviously have the wine, which is our, our Messiah told us quite thoroughly, which is great. The wine gets poured out. And of course, it obviously associates with life. Because you said life's the blood. So I said the, the wine being associated with life with the blood itself and being poured out over the offering of the offering that's being offered to the altar. We have, of course, the oil, which are, again, our Torah is great on this too. It's what oil explains very thoroughly. It is work. It is also to be an application for anointing. So it has two components. Uh, the work you do, which is called the oil of the lamp work, to be seen, and also anointing, which is obviously for, for announcing for a king or a high priest, one of the capacities, the anointing of the work, and that, of course, is with the oil, and it is as to see, the work is to be seen, which is the work component, and then the soothe, the, the, the anoint component. So we have those, that's pretty well thorough also in your Tanakh. And the last point, obviously, is the grain offering. Now, the grain offering, you will note when it is offered a number of times, and one of the most common things, grain offering, not the only thing, mind you, most common is for the poor. The poor associated with the grain offering, as we hit the idea of manna. There's two ends? Oh, well, I'll misspell manna. Uh, poor, as far as that, that's the idea, is the idea of what the manna was for to provide. So we have the basic, obviously, animal offerings themselves, and we have their basic symbols and their functionality. So when we have, as Christians, understand this idea, or we're supposed to understand this idea, that these offerings, like, oh, all the offerings are done away with, we don't do offering, we don't do, we don't kill animals, we don't slaughter stuff, we don't, we don't do any of this stuff, the temple's gone, the Messiah paid it all, we're all done. Really? Let's think about that for a minute. Are any of you strong? Don't ask the question by you, just rhetorically. <laughs> what is your strength? Have yeah, any of you wandered? Are any of us, do we, do we follow? 
It's really a question. I didn't catch that. It's really a question. I said my strength is answering rhetorical questions. Oh, oh. <laughs> Do any, I don't personally have this, but somebody might. Can any of us prophesy? Can any of us pour out our life? Can any of us work? Are any of us poor? These components haven't changed in 6,000 years. Just because the altar's gone has nothing to do with what's still going on today. Now, we, we have the great fortune. God was so kind to do this for us. In the book of, obviously, Jeremiah, and, of course, obviously, in Hebrews, who, who, who reiterates the same concept, Jeremiah points out that, hey, guys, these offerings focus on one concept over and over and over again. The namesake for Phineas, so to speak. Your peace offerings. The idea is being at peace with one another and with God. Why do you think we offer anything at all? Is it because we're bored? No. We want to be at one with our God. We want to be at peace with our God. We want to be at peace with our fellow man. Those who we offend, we want to be at peace with them. Offerings are alive and well and will continue to be alive and well. It doesn't require a temple, it doesn't require an altar. It requires action. So, Jeremiah 17, I'm going to read this out to you. Uh, Jeremiah re- it says that 17 also repeats it in 33. I Obviously, uh, Hebrews, of course, picks it up and does the exact same thing. They're all just commenting on the same topic about offerings in general. The Jeremiah 17 discusses this, the, 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 one of these items. So does Jeremiah 33 discusses it as well. So, point out this is just a, 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 a quick verse here. It says, uh, verse, let's jump down to verse 26. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Let's jump, uh, jump back to verse 20. So Jeremiah 17, verse 20, it says, say to this, referring to, he's talking that uh, Jeremiah is supposed to say this to the children of Israel at the gate. And he says, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and all of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter through these gates. Thus says Jehovah, beware for your souls, not carry a burden of Shabbat day to bring it to the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring a burden out from your house on the Sabbath day. You shall not do any manner of work. Sanctify the Sabbath day as I command your forefathers. But they did not listen and did not incline their ear. They stiffened their neck in order not to hear, in order to not accept rebuke. It shall be that if you truly listen to me, the word of Jehovah, not to bring a burden to the gates on the Shabbat day, or to, and to sanctify the Shabbat day, not to do any manner of work on it, then kings and princes who sit upon the throne of David will enter the gates of the city, riding chariots and horses, and they were their officers, the men of Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. And people will come from the cities of Judah, from the environs of Jerusalem, from the land of Benjamin, from the lowland, the mountain, and from the south, and bring burnt offerings and peace offerings and meal offerings and frankincense and bringing thanksgiving offerings to the temple of God. But if you do not listen to me and to sanctify the Shabbat day, and do not carry a burden and enter the gates of Jerusalem on Shabbat day, then I will set a fire in its gates, which will consume the palace of Jerusalem and not be extinguished. So the basic teaching they were supposed to learn about Shabbat, 
Jeremiah's pointing out, hey guys, we're to square one. This stuff that you're doing actually has no value down here. All the, the holy days have no value down here. These are garbage because you're breaking the concept of step one. Go back to the beginning. Relearn it. Then all these, he'll bring all these offerings. They'll be the, all these offerings will apply. He'll be thrilled. Life will go on well. Things will be happy. You finish step one, that means all you did in this list here of these animals and such. If you get forget step one, you might as well delete all those. All you have are bulls, goats, sheep, ram, wine, oil, and grain. They're meaningless. So what's this point behind it? These things have meaning. They mean something to our God. Hebrews 13 reiterates the same idea. Let's see, Hebrews 13. And Hosea, of course, is the exact same thing. And, and, and to Hosea 14, it repeats it. These guys are, are all talking at the same topic. They all have the same lesson to teach us. They're helping each other out in this, in, this, in this process of trying to instruct people what's right, what's wrong. So uh, Hebrews 13, verse 15, it points out that, let's see, uh, therefore by him let us continuously offer the sacrifice of praise to our God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Of course, the fruit of our lips is a reference to Hosea, saying literally offer the fruit of your lips, the offer the calves, more specifically, of your lips. So our words, our mouths matter. These things, we go along here with our strength, our wandering, our following of God, our prophesying, taking care of the poor, uh, sorry, our life, sorry, this is our life here. We have the, the what we, works we do, whether we soothe or help, taking care of the poor, providing for them. All these are things we can physically do, and they manifest themselves through our mouths, not just our actions alone. It has to be inclusive, because as, as, uh, as James pointed out, uh, faith without works is dead. Uh, you, can, you can speak it all you want, but you have to just do it. So we declare things we're going to do, and then go do them. These are what we offer. These are our offerings to our God on every holy day. Our God expects certain offerings, and he says you'll be scrupulous, which means you'll be very careful to do, to offer them. There's our job to be scrupulous, be careful to offer our respective offerings, these animals. In this case, of course, ours is our actions, what we actually do in our words we speak, is our strength, our thrust. So in this concept, understand these ideas, that the Holy Day offerings are strong and important and so much must be done. Not must be like, oh, bummer me, I really don't want to have to help the poor person. That would not be an offering. I don't want to have to, 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 to stop my wandering around the different ways of life. Well, then you would not be addressing for your sins. I don't want to have to, to study what God has to say or, 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 or my actions or to pay attention to what I'm supposed to do in life. I'd rather just do my own thing. Well, then we're trying to avoid the work that God has given to you. So the point is, when we re reject these components, reject these ideas that God has given to us in the holy days, we're rejecting him too. We're rejecting all the action that he values. Now, mind you, this, all this action I've written up here, that I have the, the explanation of these different goats and such, these are all summed up in a Jewish definition. Actually, technically, there's three definitions. Three different words. Um, uh, th there's the three, three words. This this pretty much sums up what these are supposed to be. What they, what those all those holy days are. All these offerings are for everything. The three concepts of Judaism that all these offerings fall into. 
I'm gonna write this in transliterated, transliterated English. Ahav. We have uh, obviously uh, tzedakah. Uh, transliterated. It's close. I may misspell the transliteration if that's even possible. We have obviously chesed. And these are basic concepts that we have. Now, within inside these, there are other ideas. So, in when we're dealing with these ideas of what we're offering to our God, these different bulls, goats, sheep, rams, or the our strengths, our our our, our prophesying, our tasks. There are these ideas that are built inside them, which are the overarching or the over the overall concept of how they're done. Because note, these ideas of far as how we're offering can't be physically done anymore. So in Judaism, they took a page out of Christianity in this and said, well, our words mean something. They said, okay, ahavab, which is to love. You know, kind of love your neighbor as yourself, that whole idea, which in Leviticus 19, and love your God that with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the whole idea of love. Now, love, ahav, which, uh, yeah, I think Greek does the same thing. Love is broken up into a couple different po- components. But bottom line in this form of love is friendship. More accurately, friend. I before E. Yeah, friend. Is being a friend. Note, not to be friendly, rather friend. Friendly and friend are not the same thing. You can be friendly and not be someone's friend. This idea of love is to be their friend. And Zadaka, of course, you understand is righteous, but there's a, a specific complaint about Zadaka. By the time Messiah was around, righteousness turned into or was redefined, so to speak, as almsgiving. Uh, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying that's what it is. We can, we can debate whether they should have redefined it, but that's what they defined it as. And of course, we have near, obviously Chesed, which is mercy. Or most most tra- most well translated to mercy as far as the English. Now there are rules about how we do these things for our offerings. In the case of friend, now in friend, this is the same phrase, same word that Greek uses for agape. Agape, I think it's in e. Oh, I think I spell it right. Um, now Greek, we're not referring to the feeling of you know someone loves you. This is the framing of friendship agape, not the whole, you know, husband, wife kind of thing. Uh, the friendship agape, which is I, a friend does not judge, does not condemn, does not correct. A friend listens and supports. It's a friend's job. That's what friends do. It's kind of love we're referring to. Uh, this, is, this is not to be confused with being kind or friendly to someone. You can be friendly to a stranger. There, you are not their friend. So you do not love the stranger. You love be a friend. Friend is what is love. So the Hebrew idea of love is friend, which is a similar to or related to the Greek idea of agape, which is also a friend. They, 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 there's other, other, other variations of the Greek too. Zadaka being righteousness, which our Torah normally defines as being correct or being justified in some capacity. Well, in this case, almsgiving is the justification being referred to here. Now, almsgiving has rules. As Messiah said, Messiah said, you'll do it with a good eye or light in your eye. And he says, you know, does light this eye as light as bright? If it's dark, is this, how dark is that, is, is, that, is that light? So light in your eye, which means a good eye or something who is, who is happy or content or willing and happy, not 
resentful, not upset. So there's a, a, a large component of the almsgiving idea, hence the righteousness. Mercy is different. Mercy is still inclusive. And now, we, we are, now we're going into the friendliness concept. The fr not friend, friendliness. Friendly correction. That's where we go to mercy. Like, okay, yeah, I'm not your friend, mind you, but I'm going to friendly point something out. That's where the idea of mercy. So that, that's what the, the concept, the, mind you, referring to the Jewish definition, not the Greek definition. The idea of friendly with the form of mercy associated with it in the kind of correction. So in these capacities, it's where our offerings typically live in, or at least that's where mine live, um, in these ideas of where my strength is, where I'm wandering, how I handle uh, prophecy and pouring out my life. What is my life? What is my work? What is the poor? Uh, who am I following? How am I avoiding wandering and others from wandering? Um, how, what, where do I put my strength? I put them in these. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just pointing where I put them in these. Now, this concept of love, righteousness, and mercy, and of course, as Peter and Paul both pointed out, this is the most valuable of them. The idea of being someone's friend is the most valuable of all the things you can give. Second, beyond that, of course, being righteousness, the almsgiving. And then chesed, mercy, be the one below that. So these are actually, you, if you are ordered the value, be number one and number two. And then down here, we like somewhere, actually probably like number three, but it's, we'll just call it three for the fun of it. Um, these are strong in Jewish philosophies. They are strong in Christian teachings. So nothing is different between the two. I hope that sunk in. Nothing's different between the two. Christian teaching, Jewish teaching, they're the same. They teach the same thing. They value the same thing. There's a reason they value the same thing. They helped each other out in their infancy. Christianity influenced Judaism, the rabbinic Judaism, that is. Rabbinic Judaism influenced Christianity. Messiah tied them together. So these are all fair, correct, and just. We understand that the apostles reiterate this over and over and over and over again. Messiah also said similarly while he was entering his parables, I realize they're parables instead of actual sermons per se, but these parables reiterate the same thing over and over again. So we understand these are valuable. We said where the value comes from and when we apply it, how we apply it. We apply it to everyone, to our strength. What is our strength? These, love, righteousness, mercy. What prevents us from wandering? These, love, righteousness, mercy. How does it help us follow? How do we follow our God? Through these, love, righteousness, mercy. Now granted, I can't prophesy, but somebody can prophesy, I'm sure. But when you do prophesy, how do you prophesy? You prophesy in love, righteousness, and mercy. When you pour out your life, what is your life made up of? It's made up of love, righteousness, and mercy. Love meaning for a friendship, mind you. I'm referring to a specific type of love, not just any random type. When it comes out to uh, the, the, the work you do, what work are you doing? What do you want seen by others? I want my work, the work I want seen is called friendly love, the friend love, the righteousness, the almsgiving, and the mercy. Uh, the annoyable, what soothes me, what soothes others? my friendship, my almsgiving, and my mercy. Uh, what, how do I take care of the poor and provide for them? My friendship, my almsgiving, and my mercy. 
it's pretty straightforward. Nothing really shocking about it. They're all basic symbols, but that's how our God has taught us. He teaches us through symbols. They're pretty fundamental, but they work really, 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 really well. Any questions about this Torah portion? Obviously, I went through this idea about uh, uh, Phineas and what he went through in his life and the great peace offering he, he has received from God about, about the priesthood. There'll be some kind of a, of a dual, out, dual system going on. Hence was the agreement because he has a permanent eternal decree that God gave and has to be compatible with our Messiah. And we have a description, a methodology, which makes it happen in the book of uh, Je uh, Jeremiah, which discusses the, 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 the Sadduc, the, the Sadducees, how it was going to work out. And then after that, we had discussed, obviously, the different uh, offerings and the different, as far as the, the sin offering being separated out from the other new moons and other holy days offerings, because the sin offering for Shabbat is supposed to be not focused upon your sins, but rather your instruction on how to live and what life is, what good and bad are. So you understand those before you can understand what sin is. And we go from there, when, from that point in discussing the actual the, I, idea of these animals, which is, well, I'll say somewhere. Oh, well, I lost it, misplaced it. Anyway, the animals that we're offering, the, 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 the bulls, the, the goats, the, 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 um, uh, the, which is which your 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 sheep, your rams, your wine, that kind of thing. All those offerings being offered, and how they're done, and that they're done on holy days and holy functionality. Mind you, there's a daily offering too, by the way, but that's separate from these. It's still inclusive in the description. They're offering every day all, what you're supposed to be doing and how we use them, how we use them as Christians as well as Jews. There's no difference in how we use them. They're all used the same way today, and. Hence, there's all that's what we call the Judeo Christian religions because they are very, very, very similar. So, all these offerings are still done today, and they're done most often in Judaism and Christianity in this capacity in the form of friendship and almsgiving and being friendly correction. Hopefully, it makes sense, but that's, that's the basic idea of how I, how I wanted to present this Torah portion to you today. Any questions or comments regarding what we talked about? If you if you have any questions, comments, unmute yourself so we can I can hear you or or or, or see you. One of the things that's interesting about those uh, three aspects of uh, Ahava and Tzedakah and Chesed is that with Ahava being connected to Agape, you have the idea of selfless love. Well, selfless love. What do you do? You give of yourself, which is right. Tzedakah. And no, that's a, when that's you a give very of important yourself, thing. Yeah. Then that leads to chesed, which is uh, often it's translated as loving kindness. But really, when you follow it through, it means loyalty. So loyalty means that you are willing to give of yourself, even in times when you feel like uh, the person is not being, quote, friendly. So uh, in, you know, it, God sticks with us. He has chesed for Israel, for us, even when we are not so, quote, lovable, unquote. <laughs> and it's it's been interesting interesting going through these uh discussing the, the nature of these because i'm going through a lot of different uh booklets on on how these were defined and they've been they have been defined over time differently um it's been interesting to watch as far as the progress i find may, may you my sources are strictly just the just the the, the documents that exist uh prior to messiah's, messiah's arrival and then during and then afterward as how things have changed over time and their and their ideas and concepts uh in the idea that that these have developed in not 
intentionally, mind you, but just how they worked out over time. They develop in a human being this way. Um, I understand that my children understand the idea or are being taught the idea of what is right and what is wrong. And that's an important thing to teach them. But as they grow into younger children or older children and obviously to adults, these ideas of right and wrong become fleshed out more and become more soft. I use the word soft, meaning not soft in your own conduct, but soft in how you deal with someone else. Um, right. It's an important thing to not forget because where I am today is not where I was yesterday. And it's not where I'm going to be tomorrow. My understanding of what uh, a, a, what what is chesed, what is mercy, what is this 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 genuine kindness to someone, but you still have to have a correction for them at the same time. Chesed is is combined with a yeah. There's a I love you, I like you and all, but there's there's a small tweak and I got to tweak that little thing because that's going to lead you to a wrong way, your wrong path. Uh, so the chesed has that component to it, um, and the the love that the I like. I, I'll be honest with you. I like the, the Jewish definition of achav of over the Greek just because it is a, it is a more um, broad spectrum form uh, in, the, in, in, in its idea. And that the Jewish definition of the idea of love is a form of charity, form of love, but not monetary charity. It's not monetary giving. It's giving of yourself. It's self-giving. Um, so I can give you money. Well, that has to do with almsgiving. I don't need that. Giving what you can't buy, giving which is not an object. It is you, your time, your effort, your, your emotion, your existence, giving of that. And I like that definition because it makes sense. It's consistent. When God says you love your neighbor as yourself and love me with your heart, mind, soul, body, all the things, um, I am giving my heart. I'm giving my mind. I'm giving my strength. I'm, gi- I'm giving those things because it's not that I can go out and buy the object or acquire the thing and then hand it over to somebody else, I have to give it of myself. And I like that idea of it. It makes sense as far as that definition. The Greek definition is very, very similar, actually, in in many, many ways. It is a still same idea of of not focus on what it costs me, but rather just giving of me. Um, And as opposed to the righteousness idea, the righteous idea being uh, explained or being expanded upon in the form of giving to give to uh, in a certain form of assistance. It does not have to be monetary assistance. It may be any form of assistance that's not of yourself. So in the form of, for example, I give someone information. I give someone uh, 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 an idea of something. I give someone uh, obviously money too. I can give them that too. But that righteousness is supposed to be de- delineated from the ahav or the love giving and that they're there's one thing, righteous, I give something, an object or an idea to you versus the ahav giving, the charity giving, I'm giving you of me to you. Does that make sense? Hopefully it makes sense. Yeah, and the mercy, has hands up. Yeah, the mercy thing is a whole, is its own ball game, which I in the past, maybe you guys are, you're probably smarter than I am, but I in the past, I've always associated chesed as loving kindness. Well, that's not actually a fair definition. Um, yeah, I, I, I love someone. I'm, I'm being kind to them, but I have no reason to be kind to them unless there's something, there's conflict between us. Does that make sense? It, to have someone loving kindness, to be kind to you, the loving kindness, I have something that must, there, there's a relationship or an issue between us that I'm going to approach you with it with loving kindness. Does that make sense? I have, the, 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 there's, a, the, 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 there's a, 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 a topic of discussion or a topic that is between us, whether it is, an, uh, an unjust thing or 
or or maybe a righteous thing, whatever it may be, makes a difference. But is it in between us? Am I approaching you with that topic uh, in centered in between us? We're going to talk about this topic in loving kindness, in this mercy. Hence, God said, "I will give you mercy." What's in you and God? The thing you did that was wrong. Okay, now I'm going to approach you, God, saying this, and approach you in loving kindness to address this thing between us. If what's between us is good, I'm still going to approach you in kindness with this good thing between us. Um, and so I, I'm trying to, I'm still learning a bit on this idea of how chesed and the friendly correction or, or the, the loving kindness with a, 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 regarding a subject or a topic, loving kindness on a thing or, or an idea um, is distinctly different than loving as a friend who just loves you, as a friend loves you. Which friend does not judge you, does not condemn you, say, hey, you're a bad person, uh, you shouldn't have such and such. That's not a friend. A friend listens and supports and helps. The chesed part is that, okay, now let's find a better solution. That's what, let's, let's discuss the, the idea how to fix this. Um, that's but the friend that, just that's why um, chesed has to inform the understanding of mercy that you find in the New Testament. Right. Because otherwise right. it is just, as it's often described, unmerited favor. Well, no, <laughs> that's not how chesed is used. <laughs> It's not. permissiveness. <laughs> so I, I, I think these are great topics to discuss. Um, they're important to discuss. And I think that's, I think there's a reason why both Christianity and Judaism gravitated toward these ideas early on, meaning early on, meaning after Temple fell, early on in their teaching. Okay, guys, focus who you are inside on these topics and you will do well. Um, because somebody who follows these topics in general is going to be someone who follows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because that's who those men were. And they were righteous. Okay, they made mistakes and were wrong. <laughs> they were righteous. <laughs> they had they, the friend of God, Abraham, of, of course, obviously, and the mercy that Jacob received is just un, unparalleled. Um, so there's a lot of things that, that, that go on that God worked with those men, and these are still the same fundamental beliefs in both Judaism and Christianity. I, I will admit the older I get, the less distinct the two religions become in my head. Meaning I have a Messiah, of course, which facilitates my be able to do these things and the spirit of God within me, but the teachings of them are strikingly similar. Uh, now, I'm not saying to modern day standard Christianity, referring to Christian teaching within the, within the, within the Bible itself. They're very, very similar. It's, it's, it's fascinating to watch. And as I learn my own getting older, that uh, there's a reason why Messiah said, those who are not sick have no need of a physician. When he said, how can you go into the poor and the, and the, and the, the dregs of society instead of you know, the, all the rabbis? And the said, They're not sick. They don't need a physician. They know what righteousness is. Well, they do it or not, it's a different story, but they know what it is. They know what chesed is. They know what achav is. Uh, they don't need a physician to teach them. They don't need help. Now, whether they do, it's a different story, but they know what it is. He went to people who didn't know what that was. How do you do it? What is it? So I, 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 I'm giving maybe too much credit. I don't know. <laughs> More credit to uh, the Apostle Paul's teachers than I once used to give, and that they would have taught him the same principles. Hence, where he comes up with a lot of his writings about the same topics. Uh, Messiah also talked the same principles. These guys weren't dumb men. They knew the, the guys referring to the rabbis who were around at the time were not dumb men. Uh, they even 
and acknowledged Messiah was a rabbi. The Sadducees called him a rabbi. The Pharisees called him a rabbi. They, they all recognized, okay, he, he is not a, an uneducated individual. They all accepted his teachings, and they weren't complaining about it per se. They didn't like it necessarily. They, 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 they couldn't prove him wrong. So if I interested, the teachings were not all that different in both Christianity and Judaism, at least early on. I do realize they have changed significantly the past 2,000 years. But the early on, they're very, very, very similar. Any comments or questions regarding this Torah portion? Yeah, Larry's got one. Go ahead, Larry. <clears throat> well, I think that what you've been talking about recently is absolutely fascinating, and I'd love to flesh it out <clears throat> and maybe make it something that we could talk to the people that are stuck in the Christendom to show them that they're actually still supposed to perform the sacrifices and so forth, and they do, and that Messiah told them to. But I was thinking back to when you first started talking about this dual uh, high priesthood, <clears throat> and <clears throat> we've talked before about that uh, that Messiah is now in the order of Melchizedek, and I wondered if that could impact on that thinking about two high priests. And if we go into that topic, which we just we discussed this topic before, not no this year, maybe last year, I can't remember. We discussed when when Abraham met Melchizedek to begin with. This topic was brought up in our, in our Torah portion discussions. And yes, there are a dual or two system set up as far as in that concept. That there's, there's, a, there's a, at least symbolically speaking, we have two priesthoods actively going on at the same time, though they may not have necessarily comprehended each other or, or, or even functioned the same way. And so that may be the intent as far as how God is going to handle Pinchas or his descendants and Messiah himself and how they're being uh, delineated. because. It is fascinating that God did not say you're going to end this. This will go up to a point. Uh, it, it's they have the descendants of Pinchas, and of course, Messiah didn't have any children of his own, so he didn't have descendants. But uh, Pinchas did. So this idea of high priesthood has to continue on. Otherwise, obviously, God isn't a liar, so he's not going to break his promises. If he can break that promise, he break all of them. And he's no longer a God worth following who break all promises. Um, so he's going to be somebody who who adheres to it, and, and that could be how he's going to run it. I do realize that there is great disparity between standard Christian teaching as well as other philosophies within even, even the fringe group teaching within Christianity on what life looks like during Messiah's reign and during God's reign and their two respective and how and compared to what they look like today. Um, and in that uh, there is a great, great variation in belief on what humans still around, what are not around, how they're doing their, their stuff or their tasks, how the prophets are supposed to fulfill the prophecies they gave if there aren't humans around. All, it's a funky mix. So I am inclined, personally speaking, this is my personal opinion, you may disagree, it's fine, is that there are likely to be two systems going on actively and that you have human beings, flesh and blood people still around doing the stuff, growing the vegetables, growing the, the, the animals and still offering them as a thanks to God, this is the rub because we're human. And as long as I'm alive, I can sin. Now, when I'm a spirit, as I fly flesh and blood, a human being who can bleed, I can still sin. So as long as that's still inside me, now I'm not referring to, you know, the devil made me do it and all that garbage. I mean, just me, myself, what I made myself do, what I couldn't control, that's me. As long as that's still there, I have to have some way of addressing it. Some way of saying, okay, God, I screwed this up yet again. I'll try better, but I still have to fix and pay for it. Well, Jesus paid for it. 
Okay, that's great and all, but that doesn't make me not sin again. So there is likely to be some type of a dual system active, much like there had been with, from Abraham onward, the dual, well, Abraham. Where there's one during Abraham's time, of course, and Levi with Aaron should have later. There's a dual system going on there. And there even were dual high priests within Abraham's line. There's people who, people, brothers or, or, or relatives who were high priests at the same time. So a duality is not say an evil or corrupt or anti-Torah thing or philosophy. That may be what is going to, what the plan is, maybe what he's intending to do. I don't know for certain. I'm inclined to think that's probably what's going to happen. But again, it's speculation. You're literally, literally guessing what you think will happen. And guesses are, are worth, well, it's a guess. You know? It's not worth a whole lot. <laughs> well, that's multiple choice, but that helps some. Anyway, uh, any comments or questions regarding uh, this Torah portion, our topic, the, the discussion today? Let's uh, check out, see if the people on the phone have anything. Lee, do you have any thoughts? Any thoughts, opinions, or questions? I have a question. Anne has a question. Go for it. Okay, we're talking about offerings, and you said Shabbat and the daily offering. Yes. Does not have a goat offering. Is that right? Does, I didn't catch the last sentence. Does not have what? Do not have goat offerings? Do not have sin offerings, correct. There's no, there's no offering for sin on Shabbat or daily offerings, correct. <laughs> But So in, in, in the context in the context of our Torah and what's being mm-hmm. talked about in the book of Acts, the idea, the cause was that an ordinary person, let's say we'll call him uh, Joe Schmo. Let's say Joe Schmo has no knowledge, I'm rereading, of, of a God, of any God. Uh, whether it's the God of Abraham, Jacob, whether it's the God of, maybe he's an atheist, who knows? So he has no knowledge of what that is. So the idea was the book of Acts explanation was pretty simple. 
only require the very minimum of these guys who don't know anything or have any comprehension of what a God is. Now, we're not referring to someone who's a child, we're referring to someone who's an adult, a, a grown adult human being. And so, in the case of, in case of this, this, this guy, whatever, he, whatever his previous knowledge is, isn't really relevant. The point is, in his case, the acts was, of course, there's no, uh, the no blood. Uh, so he was sexually, sexually immoral. And what else was there? Sexually immoral. Uh, sacrifice to idols. What was that? Strangled meat and sacrificed to idols. Oh, thank you. Sacrifice. Okay, strangled. And idols. So that was all the requirement. Now, in modern day, unfortunately, I, I say this very, we're very sad, unfortunately. Um, modern day Christianity, now, mind you, I've read modern day meaning the last couple hundred years. This seems to be the philosophy that, oh, well, if you just do these things, that's it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. But in both instances, it's recorded twice in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 15 and Acts I think it's 25 or 26, I can't remember, records it again. It's the same exact thing. Hey, guys, these are minimum requirements to start. So this is baby step one is don't drink blood. Don't sleep around with anything you can see. Don't eat strangled meat and don't sacrifice idols. Baby step one. Once you've accomplished this basic fundamental, then all over here, travel, we go. Because Moses is taught in the synagogues every Shabbat. So the idea is, baby step one, don't blood, strangle things and idols, is your baby step. Now let's go from baby step one, the easiest one to avoid, because there's just things you just don't do these things. It's pretty easy. I suppose to, to do something. This is to not do something. To these basics, then you go to Shabbat because Moses taught. So, mind you, in the book of Acts, was there anything called a church? No. And no. What were they all called? Assembly. Synagogues. There was no such thing as a Christian church that exists. This thing is, as a bunch of Gentiles only, if you want to know about your God, you all had to go to synagogue. Well, what's a synagogue? Well, it's a Jewish place of congregation for study and teaching. And when did you go? Every Shabbat. Now, you may have gone other days of the week, too. The point is, every Shabbat, you, were, you, you went. So all these poor Gentiles or poor, ignorant people who know nothing do the baby steps, then every Shabbat go here. Note, he didn't require anything else. He didn't say, go bathe, go get a mikvah, go uh, 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 offer your sacrifices to pay for all these bad things you did. None of that stuff. Because they're going to learn it here. They'll learn it here. Once they've learned it here at Shabbat, then they'll say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And all this stuff then makes sense. This is baby step one. It was not the final destination, which unfortunately some groups have taught as this, this no blood and no sexual morality, strangle meats and idols was the destination. That's not the destination. This is, you know, learning to walk and you had to stand first. Okay, here's your standing. Good job, little child. 
You stand. Now take your first step. What's over here? Not Shabbat. Step one. Oh, it's not step one. You're moving forward. Get, get, get along. Once you got along, then you move forward. A child, however, that grows up in a household, in my opinion, this is Daniel's opinion, that's one of the fundamental reasons for, for circumcision. The child, the child is, is, doesn't know is being circumcised, but the parents do. They're committing to teach this child who of what he came from, or she came from, but where they come from. But they are, instead of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that means something. So a child we taught continuously. Every day of your life, you're learning. Mm-hmm. But a Gentile who knows nothing, it was taught some pagan ritual, whatever it may be, they were taught something that was completely false. Well, you wouldn't expect your child to obviously run a marathon when they're, when they're crawling still. You don't expect a Gentile to be a, a righteous individual when he's still learning to stand up. Same principle. So the idea is that Shabbat is taught. So their explanation, the apostles all agreed upon this, including Apostle Paul, that if they can do these things, then they'll learn everything else by going to synagogues every week and reading Moses. Because they all explain, all, all the apostles, the same thing. Because the reason is Moses is taught every synagogue every week in Shabbat. It's taught every week. And these people who do this, this basic fundamental stand up on your own two feet kind of thing, will eventually learn everything to do by following Moses when they learn on Shabbat. So they're, the, the apostles are treating Shabbat as a schoolhouse. Because it's a synagogue. That's where it's being taught. What synagogues are made for? They're made for, for, for congregations to come together as a schoolhouse, as, as, as being taught together as a group. Hopefully that makes sense. So it's a dual system in that infants are taught one way because they're infants, but then adults, of course, when they're adults, you're taught, you're expected, okay, go learn this and here's your spot to learn. We're not addressing, that's, that's why I'm a big advocate. I'm a strong advocate, personally speaking, um, is that regardless of where you come from, what your background is, what you think, what you believe, what you were taught, on Shabbat, you're welcome. Come. I don't care where you came from. I don't care who you slept with last night. I don't care what you did the week before. I don't care what you did. Come on Shabbat. Because you don't learn anything by saying, stay away. You can't come here. You did it wrong. You're not doing it my way. You didn't do it God's way. Go away. That's worthless. Right. So Shabbat is an invitation to everybody. Now, holy days, that's a different story. <laughs> You want to produce holy days? Okay, now there's some basic steps you got to walk through because these holy days mean something. They're more than just education spaces. They actually, this, 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 this conduct is, is meaningful. It has to do something and it is connected with your salvation in your life, how, the, how you got to live your life. So holy days are a different story, but when it comes to Shabbat, just come. Just come. Start there, and then we'll learn. Then we can talk. Then we can teach and discuss. Does that make sense? I think that's why the same, my personally, that's where the same philosophy where the apostles were at. Just do the basics and then come. And then we'll discuss, and you can learn everything you need to come. You can figure out what, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, and what this all this stuff means. Otherwise, you have no knowledge what it means. It's just empty, ancient book full of different languages and words. That makes sense, hopefully? Any comments or questions regarding this Torah portion? All right, we will conclude with a prayer then. Almighty God, our great Father, thank you. For Shabbat, a day of rest. Father, we ask you to bless us and keep us safe and help us to learn what is fair and just in your eyes. Father, Father, help us to be at peace with you and the world around us, the people around us, to be good servants to you, good examples of followers of our God. Father, may we be at peace. 
to be kind to another. For kindness is your practice. Love is your practice, Father. Help us to be those things too. Bless us throughout our time together. We have that we can celebrate and worship and trust you, Father, for you are good and you have given us our days of rest. We glorify you, Father, in Yeshua's name. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.